Last Sunday, we began a little uh, mini-series entitled Testing the Spirits, and uh, the series is meant to address one of the great problems in the church today, which is the blatant and rampant misuse of visions, tongues, and miracles, these supernatural things. Um, These supernatural things have not only become common in the church today, but also for many churches, the central focus. The gospel of Jesus Christ has essentially been removed or replaced or set aside by these particular things. Churches have literally forfeited their mission, which is to preach the gospel everywhere and to make disciples in all nations. The church has, and this is a I don't know, some of you might not agree with this statement, and I wouldn't say it's the whole church. There's always the remnant, which is the faithful church. But for the most part, the church has, in many ways, become like a circus where ringleader pastors dazzle spectators through well-rehearsed rituals and routines, doing these things and speaking in these tongues and performing these miracles like crazy, just one after the other and claiming these visions and all of these things. and It's, it's pretty intense. It's happening all over in the church. Uh, tongue and miracle services are pretty normal now. That's a common thing in churches where churches actually plan and strategize and execute church services where you can come and experience miracles. You can come and speak in tongues and those things. And then obviously some churches, there's just tongue speaking throughout the entire service and all of that and all sorts of stuff happening there. And these particular churches that focus on these things, exalt these things, claim these things, do these things, plan these things, execute these things, they literally draw thousands upon thousands of people. I mean, they just fill up with people. People coming to receive a miracle, coming to experience whatever's happening there, coming to investigate, investigate, coming with a lot of speculation and doubts or whatever it is. But for whatever reason, these churches draw many, many, many uh, people into them for these events and for these things. And you might remember, if you were part of our gathering last week, I mentioned that the fastest growing denomination within Christendom is the Pentecostal denomination. And the Pentecostal denomination is the one that really exalts these things up. Now, not all of them get crazy with these things, but many of them do. And so, kind of an interesting thing. Now, we must be careful, though, and not quick to condemn these behaviors and actions and things that are playing out. We want to know what Scripture says about them. We want to live according to what Scripture says about these things. The Bible does contain many examples of visions, tongues, and miracles. Tongues, more particularly in the New Testament. But we see visions in the Old Testament, and we really kind of studied that last week. We didn't study it in great detail. It was really kind of an overview thing. We examined every example of a vision that I could find in the Old Testament quickly and then kind of formed some patterns and went from there. It wasn't very exhaustive. It wasn't very systematic. Um, But today is a little different. Today we're going to look at the New Testament on visions, and we're going to look at every example of a vision that I could find in the New Testament. There were 13. We're going to focus on 10 and then make mention of the other three. But there's basically about 13 examples in the New Testament of these things, of this particular thing, of visions. We're going to look at each one of them. We're going to read a lot of scripture. And what I'm going to do is as we read a text, what I'll do is I'll identify who received the vision. I'll identify uh, at what particular time they received it. Was there a strategic time involved? Is, Is it a timely thing? And then we'll also examine the purpose of it 
the meaning of it, what it was supposed to bring about. So we'll kind of be asking, so we'll be kind of asking like a who, when, and a what kind of question, and I'll answer them. Not going to give massive amounts of line-by-line -line exposition. Don't have time for it. Got a lot to cover today. But you're going to get a solid um, sort of another overview, and then now you're going to be able to identify where these visions are. Who's ever like just studied visions in the Bible? I've never done that before. As a pastor, some of you are probably thinking, well, shame on you. You probably should have. I mean, who studies that, right? Who actually stops and says, I'm going to investigate these things. I'm going to look into these things. I can tell you I've done that with tongues, but I've never done it with visions, and I really haven't done it with miracles. So it's going to be interesting. It's going to be cool for you today that you're going to now see all the texts in the New Testament. There might be more, but according to what I, my investigation, I found these. But you're going to look at every one of them. You're going to hear them, and you're going to know the who the um, when and the what. And I think that's just really cool. So I hope you love the scripture because we're going to be in it a lot. Some of the sections are a little bigger than others, but we're going to get through those things. And then by the time we get done with those, we're going to look at the commonalities between all of them. There are some commonalities. God has very purposefully threaded some patterns into his word. And, and the beauty of that is that when we look at the examples, we look at the patterns, the who, the when, and the what's, we'll now have a great sense of how God operates the, through those things by looking at history, and that'll help us to discern what he's doing today and if he is even doing anything with visions today and, and so on and so forth. So I'm pretty excited about that. You guys, you guys good to go? Lots of scripture coming your way, okay? Lots of scripture. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray one more time here, and then we'll begin to look at our examples. I'll call out each, each example. We'll read, we'll identify, and we'll just keep moving. Let me pray for us, though. I've got a little bit of an anxious heart this morning. I don't, I don't know what's going on there. I don't know. Anyone else feeling that way? No? Yeah? Yeah. Maybe it's because I'm about to preach. I don't know, man. I always get weird and strange. Father, just calm my heart right now, Lord. And, um, you know, may, maybe, Lord, maybe this is a demonic thing that's happening that, that I feel uneasy about this subject that, you know, I don't know. I don't know what's going on here. Um, but Lord, I do pray that you'd calm my heart, give me focus, help our people here today and our guests, Lord, just to be focused. We want to learn from you today, Lord, and the, the truest goal of the Christian life is to know your word. It's to hear it, it's to know it, it's to understand it, it's to apply it, and it is to live it out. Um, that, that, that is what we are to do, Lord. Uh, and, and in order for that to take place, Lord, we've got to engage your word, and we've got to be open to your word. We've got to be willing, Lord, in these times to maybe set our theologies aside. We've got to be willing to set our traditions aside. You know, I grew up in this particular church, blah, 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 and this is what I believe because that's where I came from. Lord, we've got to be willing to humble ourselves in this divinely appointed moment just to listen to your word. This is not me that's speaking. This is your word that speaks. Your word gives clarity on this subject. It gives clarity on tongues. It gives clarity on miracles. It gives clarity on visions. It gives clarity to, towards and for all things that pertain to the Christian's life, to life and living, to glorifying you. The scriptures are sufficient. We don't need anything else, Father. We need your word. Teach us from it today, Lord. Humble us now in this moment. May we hear from you and may we learn. May we obey. May we honor and glorify you and please you and remain on mission, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray this in the holy name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so first example. You're going to need to turn over to Luke. 
Luke chapter 1, I'm going to read verse 5 to 23. Luke chapter 1, verse 5 to 23. I will be reading from the ESV, which is, most people know that that's my favorite translation. I hope that it becomes yours. If it isn't, some are saying, nope. You've completely abandoned what I said about forsaking your theology and your tradition already. You're, you're out of here. It's like, I'm out of here. I hate this place. That pastor's dead to me. Not leaving my NIV. All right, Luke 1, 5 to 23. Let me read it. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him, here's the vision, and there appeared to him uh, an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. 16, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel, I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. 21. And, the, and, and it says, the Lord, uh, it says, and the people came out, oh no, it says, and the people, my, my bad, and the people were waiting on Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple, probably thought he died. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute, and when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Now, another thing that I'd like to call your attention to, that's a long section, but it's an, it's an amazing section. Um, I've tried to put these visions in a chrono chronological order. And so they're sort of in an order in which they took place according to uh, history and according to the scriptures. Now, who received the vision? It's kind of a no-brainer, right? It was Zechariah the priest and husband of Elizabeth. And we could add that he became the father of John the Baptist. When did he, when did Zechariah receive the vision? Zechariah received the vision when, while he was, or during his duty, while he was performing his priestly duties at the temple during 
a worship service. They had these worship services a couple of times a day, every day, seven days a week. And he was there doing his duty, and he was the guy putting the, you know, the, the incense on the altar of incense, and it was burning up, and the aroma would go up to the Lord, and all the people were praying. He was in basically back in the holiest of holies doing his job. That's when he got the vision. Now, what was the purpose of the vision? Keep in mind, we're establishing patterns. The purpose of the vision was to notify, make aware, Zechariah that his older, barren wife was going to become pregnant and give birth to a son named John, who would basically grow up to become a mighty prophet and who would prepare God's people for who? The coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. Okay, that is the purpose of the vision. Hey, your wife's going to have a baby. No, I don't think so. She's barren. She's older. Guess what? You're not going to be able to speak, but my foretelling is going to come true. You're going to have, a, she's going to have a baby and he's, you're going to call him Johnny. And he's going to grow up and he's going to become an amazing prophet, blah, 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 blah. He's going to pave the way for the Lord Jesus Christ, for the coming Messiah. If you notice right there that the vision has to do with redemptive work. It has to do with Jesus. It has to do with the coming Messiah, and that is a theme that we're going to see through all of these visions. Example two, uh, I think you can look down a little bit at 26 to 35 in Luke 1. Luke 1, 26 to 35, example two. Are you there? If you're there, say, I'm there. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city, to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. To who? To a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her. Gabriel came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God says in 31, and behold, here's what he says to her in this vision, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. It's an everlasting kingdom. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? I've never been with a man. And the angel, the angel answered her and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child, will be born, the ch therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. That's an amazing vision that she receives. Who received the vision? Again, pretty easy. Mary, the virgin fiancé of Joseph, right? That's who got the vision. Now, when did she receive the vision? She received this miraculous vision during the sixth month. What is that? The sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Okay, we see that in 26, verse 26. During the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. God's kind of strategically lining things up here. The prophet's coming first, then the Messiah will soon follow. So there's a strategy here. Now, what was the purpose of the vision? I think we all know, but let's just think about it for a moment. The purpose was to inform Mary that God was with her, that she was favored by God, and that she would conceive and bear the Son of the Most High through what? Through the power, through the power of the Holy Spirit, 
And his name, her son's name, would be Jesus. And he would be the everlasting sort of messianic sovereign savior king. Kind of in verses 31 to 35 where it says that. Basically, what is the vision? You're going to give birth to the Savior. How? The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and he's going to be holy. That's the vision that she gets. Now, that's a huge vision, isn't it? That's a big vision. I mean, the Zechariah one's massive, right? The prophet's coming. Now we've got Mary. You kind of see a pattern here. These are like key people here. This is like big time stuff here. The Messiah is coming. That's what this vision's about. Now, again, what is the purpose? Again, another theme, another thread. Messianic vision about the Redeemer, about Jesus, about the gospel. Again, common thing there. Example three, turn over to, or actually you're going to have to turn back to Matthew 1, 18 to 23. And it's okay, take your time getting over there. Let's look at all of these. I want you to know where these things are, and you need to learn to navigate your Bible. You do. Matthew 1, 18 to 23, example 3. And if you're more comfortable with just listening, that's fine too. Matthew 1, 18 to 23. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, here it comes, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Here's the vision. Saying, what did the angel say to him? Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will, listen to this, for he will what? Save his people from their sins. And then it says all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And what did the prophet say? Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Again, who received the vision? Joseph, fiancé to Mary, earthly father of Jesus, right? When did he receive the vision? Somewhere around the same time that Mary gets hers, shortly after or what have you. But for the most part, his vision took place at night during a dream while he was asleep. Now, if you remember last week when we looked at the Old Testament... I'd say about 80% of the visions came at night during dreams to all of those that got them. So that's interesting, right? They came at night during dreams. What do we see today? I got visions. I get visions all the time. I was walking to stop and save. God gave me a vision to go sit on a bar stool and, you know, have a Mickey's or whatever. It's like God doesn't send those kinds of visions. Why? Because for the most part, he sends them at night. And in and, and every case, they're always about Jesus. So whatever you received obviously wasn't from him. Patterns, patterns, patterns. Now, what was the purpose of Joseph's vision? The purpose was to calm Joseph's fears about marrying his fiancée, who in his mind obviously had become pregnant by somebody else. What was spinning through this guy's mind? You're knocked up? Are you kidding me? Right? But he was a just man. He was a godly man, and he sought to break that betrothment Break off that wedding engagement off in a godly way. But for the most part, the vision came to him to calm his fears about marrying his fiancée, who had become pregnant by who? The Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit. And, and also, the vision came to him to give him the name of the child, Jesus, which is what 
the angel had told Mary, you're going to name him Jesus. Now the angel is telling Joseph, you're going to name him Jesus. Both of them are unified in this name. And what else did the angel come? What is the other purpose of it that we see here? It was to inform him that the child would be Israel's savior. This is the Messiah that's coming through your betrothed. Pretty amazing. Again, theme there, threaded. It's about Jesus. It's about the gospel. Example four. Example four. And we've got to turn over to Matthew 17. Matthew 17. We're going to look at 1 to 13. Lots of scripture today. We're so not used to that in our church services, are we? And how dumb does that sound? And literally, while I was preparing this message, I looked at it, and I saw how many pages I had and how many passages I had, and the first thing I said to myself was, that's too much scripture. How am I going to deal with this? And God said, cut out some of your commentary. And I was like, I love you. Because I, I just want to tell you all what I think it means. The best thing that you could ever do is just hear the scripture plainly read. You know, seriously. We don't do it enough. And so I love reading it. 17, 1 to 13. It says, and after six days, Jesus took with him. This is an amazing one here, guys. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother. That's James's brother, John, the sons of thunder. And led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was what? Transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun. And his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah. These guys have been dead for a long time. Well, not Elijah. I thought he got caught up. But take, right? They were talking with him. These two guys were there talking with him. That'd be interesting. And then it says in 4, And Peter said to Jesus... Lord, it is good that we are here. <laughs> okay, you got to add your two cents. If you wish, I will make three tents here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Verse 5, he was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Peter, shut up and listen to him. Verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And verse 9, and as they were coming down the mountain, okay, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Don't tell anyone until after my resurrection. And the disciples asked him then, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come and he will restore all things. And then he goes down in 12, he says, but I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist who came like Elijah. All right, now who received this vision? We got three cats that are mentioned. We got Peter, we got James, and we got John, who were what? Disciples, later on became apostles of who? Jesus the Messiah. Now, when did they receive the vision? Obviously, they received the vision while on a high mountain. Uh, there's speculation as to which one it was. Some say Tabor, some say Olivet. Tabor seems to be a better candidate because it's taller than Olivet, Mount of Olives. When? During the third year of Jesus' ministry, 
Okay, Jesus did ministry for about three and a half years. This was at the beginning of his third and final year of ministry. Very, very interesting. That's when it took place. Third year of Jesus' ministry. Now, something that sparked in my mind, I know we're covering um, when did they receive it, but think quickly uh, about the last time maybe you read a story or heard a story where someone met with God on a high mountain. And the first thing that comes to mind is Moses when he got the law. It's an interesting connection there. And if you look at the Old Testament, you'll see in many cases that God does meet with people on high mountains. God is high and exalted and lifted up. And that's where he likes to, to, to mingle with his servants. That's where he gave the law. And that's where he, Jesus prayed to him many times. And that's where this transfiguration took place. It's amazing. Incredibly, Moses and Elijah were both present during this transfiguration, during this vision that these guys got. One was there as a representative of the law, that would be Moses, and the other as a representative of the prophets, that would be Elijah. That's why they were there, and they were there to serve Jesus, okay? That's when, that, when the vision came while they were up on this high mountain. Lots of parallels to the Old Testament. What was the purpose of the vision? The purpose of the vision was to provide, listen, Peter, James, and John with visual and audible proof of the glory and divinity of Jesus Christ. They saw him, and it says in Mark that his clothes were so white that no one, no, you know, no one who does laundry could ever get them that white. That represents the manifest glory, the beauty and glory of God. And then, and then we hear the voice of God speaking, this is my son, there's the divinity being affirmed. So these guys went up purpose, they went up, maybe they had doubts or whatever, I don't know. They went up, they saw Jesus in glory, they heard the voice of God affirm that he is my God son. That's the purpose. What an experience these guys had, right? Pretty amazing. Again, common thread, it's about Jesus. Why? Because it's always about Jesus. All right, this is about Jesus glorified. This is about Jesus as God. This is about these two servants, Moses and Elijah, serving God, serving the Son of God, Jesus. Again, gospel-centered vision. Example five. Turn to Acts 2, 1 to 4. Are the patterns coming through for you? Pretty common theme here, huh? Pretty interesting, isn't it? You don't know these things unless you study them. And then what do we do? We just do whatever seems right to us. How much of that's going on today? You've got to be biblical. Example 5, Acts 2, 1 to 4. Acts 2, 1 to 4. This is an amazing one. All of us are familiar with this vision. This is this bad of the bone right here. Example 5, 2, 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. That's the early Christians, the early church, the 120 group. They were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. We've heard that in Modesto for three days, but this was way bigger than that, right? And it filled the entire house where they were sitting, upper room. And then here's the vision they had, and divided tongues as fire, what, appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, amazing, and began to speak in other tongues. She left on a Honda, no, other languages, as the Spirit gave them utterance. Okay, again, who received the vision? 
the 120 early Christians, right? There was 120. Jesus ascends into heaven. There's about 120 of them. And they hang out in the upper room and they pray and they listen to the apostles teaching and all this stuff. That was the church in the early days. The 120 that gathered regularly in the upper room. When did they receive the vision? They received it while they were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, during the Pentecost feast, while gathered in the upper room. It's plain to see. Now, what was the purpose of the vision? This is something that people get wrong. What was the purpose of the vision? The vision was what? Of flaming tongues that rested on each of them. The purpose of the vision was to provide the 120 with visual proof, with visual evidence, with the evidence of a visual uh, anointing. It was to provide them with this visual evidence that they had been what? Anointed with the ability to speak what? The languages of the foreign worshipers who had gathered from all corners of the world, who were gathered in Jerusalem. The vision was meant to affirm that they had been um, given the ability to speak these foreign languages For what purpose? So that they could go down during the Pentecostal feast and what? Preach the gospel. Common theme again. Preach the gospel. This 120, all of a sudden a guy who's never spoke French in his life, wee wee, comes out of there, wee wee. I don't think French was one of them, but I mean they come down and they're speaking probably and what they're hearing is their own language, but it's coming out in the language of people from parts of Egypt and other parts of Mesopotamia. They're speaking in the languages that were represented by all of these different people who had gathered in Jerusalem. All these Jews and half-Jews and Hellenists and God-fearers and all that. They're speaking in those. And what, what, is the, what is the common mistranslation? They were speaking in some tongues of angels here. They weren't speaking in any tongues of angels. They were speaking in the languages of the land so that the gospel could be communicated clearly to those who had come who needed to hear the gospel. And then Peter came down and preached the gospel right shortly after that. 3,000 people bowed their knee to Jesus. It's amazing. Purpose of the vision? Give them a visual proof that they had been anointed with this language. That's why it was a tongue. We speak with our tongue. We use our tongue. Tongue represents the other tongues, the other languages. Really amazing. Really amazing. Example six, roll with me here, roll over to Acts 9, Acts 9, we're, we're, we're hustling, we're going to get through these, Acts 9, 1 to 9, Acts 9, 1 to 9, Acts 9, 1 to 9, if you're there, say I'm there, two more, okay, Now that Jared's there, we're good. I couldn't do it without him. I didn't want him to be left behind. Okay? Goofy movies. Acts 9, 1 to 9. Some of you are like, I love that movie. I love you. All right, Acts 9, 1 to 9. It says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. This is one of my favorites. Went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues and at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging, any Christians belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. Here comes the vision. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you? Lord, 
And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, no doubt, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Eight, Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Again, who received the vision? Saul, the ruthless persecutor of the Christian church and future apostle to the Gentiles and author of 13 New Testament books. This is a big league guy here, just like all the other folks are big league people. This is interesting. Now, when did he receive the vision? He received it while traveling to arrest and imprison Christians in Damascus. He got a charter. He got a quest. He went and got legal documentation, and he was headed over to Damascus in Syria to arrest Christians there. And that's when he got the vision. Amazing. Now, what was the purpose of his vision? Or the purpose of the vision that he received. I think it was fourfold. Probably more points than these, but I'll go through them quickly. A, to show Saul that he had been persecuting the true Savior of Israel, Jesus of Nazareth, by persecuting his followers. By persecuting the church. By persecuting members of the way. That was one of the points to the vision. One of the points to the vision. Another one, B, to rescue Saul from his error and rebellion against God. That's so interesting with this man. He thought he was serving God with his whole heart. Just like many Muslims do today when they fly planes into buildings and do other things. Not all Muslims do that. But they believe they are serving God. They believe they are serving God wholeheartedly. Some of them say that, you know, the best way to serve God is to be the most extreme. We have a history of crusades and things where we claim that we were doing these things as we served God. And so Saul, you know, he was being rescued from his error, his false line of thinking, and ultimately it was rebellion against God. It wasn't service at all. Torturing Christians hurt God. Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? It's amazing. See, to bring Saul's, I believe this, to bring Saul's reign of terror to an end. All right, for whatever reason, God allows terror to hit the church. He allows persecutors and persecutions and these things to happen. But we see in this particular instance, he changes this man and brings that man's persecution, which was unlike anything the Christians had seen up until this point and then long after. He brings it to an end. By what? Killing the guy? No, by saving him, making him like the Christians. Whoa, I can't believe how in error I was in. Many think that you've heard of... Saul or Paul later, he became talk about the thorn in his side, right? Or the thorn that he had, the thorn of the flesh. Some say that was asthma. You know, some say it was, I don't know, allergies. Some say he had, a, he had stomach issues, you know, and like Martin Luther, you know, he had old bubble guts. You know, they come up with all kinds of weird things. I believe the thorn was probably the way he felt about what he had done to the church. That he was in mental, emotional anguish over what he had done to the church. We don't know, but I think it was something along those lines. God gave him a vision, Jesus Christ, to bring his reign of terror to an end. And then what? D, very important, to start Saul's transformation process from Pharisee to apostle, missionary, and church planter. 
Was the man saved in a nanosecond? Absolutely, but sanctification takes a lifetime. It was many years later before he really became an apostle and went out and did ministry. He did stuff immediately, but it was messy. He was hardcore. Now, Saul went on, obviously, to change his name. And this is where those other visions, those other three I, I've talked about. I'm not going to talk about them in detail. But he went on to change his name to Paul. And during his ministry, he received three more visions. We see those in Acts 16, 6 to 10, Acts 18, 9 to 10. And we're going to see all these as we study Acts. And we are in it. It's great. And 26, 19. Now, here's the thing. Each and every vision had to do these additional ones. His first one was to be introduced to Jesus the gospel and to be changed and these other ones that came down the pike the purpose of each of them was in and for the spreading and expansion of the gospel that's why he received the other ones he was in Corinth and people weren't receptive to the truth there they weren't receptive to the gospel and he got a vision and God said keep preaching Jesus and so they pertain to that to the gospel again common example 7 look at Acts 9 10 to 16 Acts 9, 10 to 16. Are you there? Almost. Acts 9, 10 to 16. We're getting there. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Not Sapphira's husband. They were with the Lord, hopefully. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, came to him and spoke to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. I'm right here. I'm listening. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision. There's another vision that he got, I guess. Yeah, he got another one there. He has seen in a vision uh, a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. So he's talking about Saul who got another vision there. So there's one more to add. Just goes to show my study ain't perfect. Verse 13, but Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Who received the vision? A Christian leader, a man named Ananias who lived in Damascus. He was a Christian leader. Scholars believe he wasn't just an average Christian. He was actually a leader at maybe one of the home churches in that area. He may have been one that fled under the persecution of Saul or something like that. We don't know. I think that's what happened. But he landed in Damascus and basically probably ran a church there. That's who received the vision, Ananias. When did he receive the vision? He received the vision right after Right after Saul entered Damascus, after he got blinded, he, he received it right after Saul entered Damascus as a blind new convert. Man, Saul came into Damascus, Ananias got the vision. Pretty amazing. What was the purpose of the vision? The purpose of the vision was to inform Ananias that God had chosen him to go to Saul to restore his sight, and to do what? To commission Saul for gospel service. That's what the vision was about. It's about Jesus again. Example 8, Acts 10, 1 to 6. Acts 10, 1 to 6. Acts 10, 1 to 6. 
at Caesarea, and this is the one we've been studying in our text because we are working our way through the book of Acts, and we're going to get back to that and really flesh, flesh this thing out. We're going to work this text really good after this little mini-series is done. So don't think, oh, he left the book of Acts forever. No, he didn't. He's going to get back to it. I'm speaking about myself. Um, Acts 10, 1 to 6. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian co cohort. A devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. We've already studied that section. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, what? Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? It's funny, everyone says that when they see an angel. Lord, they ask that question. And he said to him, your prayers, this is what the angel said, and your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial to God. And now send men to Yopa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. Who received the vision? Cornelius, a devout God-fearer. He was also a Roman centurion. Where did he live? In Caesarea. Cornelius was a non-Jewish Gentile is what he was. He had no connection to Judaism other than some aspects of its religion. That's who he was. When did he receive the vision? We covered this several weeks ago. Cornelius received the vision during the ninth hour, 3 p.m., while he was praying. Pretty interesting, strategic time. That was a time that all Jews prayed every day. And he was sort of like a half-Jew or wannabe Jew. And he was praying at the ninth hour and received the vision, which is simultaneously the same time that Jesus Christ died and made an atonement for the sins of sinners on the cross. Amazing parallels. We studied all that. Go to our website and listen. What was the purpose of the vision? What was the purpose? This is interesting. And this is something we're going to have to study in more detail in the future. We will. The purpose was to inform Cornelius um, that he needed to send men to retrieve Peter from the town of Yopa, which was down south about 50 miles. If you read on, though, you will see that the reason why God sent, uh, sent for Peter was so that he could come and preach the gospel to Cornelius and his household. As you read through that narrative, that storyline of Cornelius, that's why Cornelius sent to get him. That's why the angel said, send men to go get him. What, what was the purpose of it? To go retrieve Peter so that he could come from down south, Yopa, travel 50 miles north, come to Caesarea, go into this man's house, we're going to study all this, and preach the gospel to Cornelius' household, him and Cornelius' household. It's amazing. Purpose of the vision. Go get the preacher. Go get the apostle, the representative of Jesus Christ who will come and share the gospel with you. That is the purpose of it. And when, if you read down a little ways, when Cornelius and his household heard the truth, when they heard the gospel, they repented of their sin, their disbelief, and they believed in Jesus Christ. Now, this event marked a turning point in redemptive history where God began to bring salvation to non-Jewish people, Gentiles, like never before in history. This was where God began to make the mystery of the gospel known to Gentiles that all along he had planned to add non-Jewish people to his church, to his family. And that's what's happening with Cornelius. It's so significant. So the purpose is multifaceted, turning point redemptive history, and also to go and get the preacher so that that turning point could take place. Amazing strategery by God here. Insanity, killer, insane stuff. 
Example 9. nine uh, we're going to look at example 9, Acts 10, 9 to 23. Like I said, I'm going to bring all this together shortly. We're almost there. You guys are doing great. You guys are doing great. Example 9, look at Acts 10, 9 to 23. It says, the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens open. Here's his vision. Saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again uh, a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. Wow, what a rebuke. This happened three times. Does that remind you of something? How many times did Peter denounce Jesus? What's he doing here again? That's why I'm just like him. I do it myself, right? This happened three times, and the thing was taken up once, uh, up at once to heaven. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision, uh, what the vision, as to what the vision, uh, as to golly, as to what the vision that he had seen might mean, that's a perplexing thing. Behold, I don't even understand the text. I can't read the text. Behold, the men, the ESV does that to me sometimes. I should be reading from, I don't know, the message. Just kidding. Uh, Behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, now this is amazing, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate. The time that he's getting the vision and and the vision closes out, these guys are at the gate. And called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. Hey, is that guy here? And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who is well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation. That's pretty amazing. The whole Jewish nation knows was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Okay, who received the vision? Peter, Simon Peter, the man with many names, the leader of the apostles, the disciple who was close to Jesus, Jesus' right-hand guy. That's who received the vision. When did he receive the vision? Peter received the vision during the sixth hour, that's noon, while he was praying. It was lunchtime. He was hungry. This happened just before he actually traveled north to see Cornelius. So Cornelius is up north. He gets a vision. Peter's down south. He gets a vision. Pretty timely. Now what was the purpose of Peter's vision? The purpose of the vision was to awaken Peter to God's redemptive plan for Gentiles. It was intended to not only challenge, but to transform Peter's perspective on whom the gospel was for. God's plan all along was and is to present the gospel to every tribe and tongue, and so that people from every tribe and tongue can be added to the family and kingdom of God. 
This was and remains even today for some a difficult concept for Jewish minds. Peter wrestled with this. He was Jewish through and through. He thought all the blessings and promise and all that God had to offer was for the Jews and for him. He had a, a little bit of a difficult time with this. Jews during Peter's day believed that salvation was for them and them alone. Gentiles were considered to be like unclean dogs. Jews weren't even supposed to enter their homes. To do so would what? Defile them. Peter still thought along these lines to some degree, but the vision he received basically demolished his preconceived notions, his traditions, his theology. Right after the vision ended, Gentiles, haha, unclean, Cornelius' men knocked on the door and asked Peter to come with them to Caesarea. Peter was able to make the connection between the vision and Cornelius' men, and then he left Iopa at once and went up to Cornelius and Caesarea to preach the gospel, hence the turning point in redemptive history. Amazing, amazing what happened, what took place. Example 10. We'll start threading these things together. I've done a little bit of that, but we'll really start dialing them together and you can see all these correlations and connections. I didn't even tell you what passage. <laughs> Example 10, find it. See if I can get a vision. Ah. Revelation 1, chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. This is an interesting passage. It's an interesting book. If you want to blow up your church attendance, just do an end times conference. You get all kinds of people coming in there and checking that out. We'll stay in Acts. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Let me couch it by saying this first and foremost. The book of Revelation is essentially the account of one long, detailed vision. The entire book is a vision. Okay? So when you think of Revelation, think of a vision to a man. 1, 1 to 3. The Revelation says this, I love this, I love the book, it's amazing. The Revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And what does it say? Even to all that he, what? Saw. It's a vision. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near how the book comes and starts and begins. It's pretty amazing. Who received the vision? The Apostle John. The Apostle John. When did John receive the vision? John received the vision while exiled on the island of Patmos. John had been banished to Patmos for loving and serving Jesus, for preaching the gospel. What was the purpose of the vision? The purpose of John's vision, the purpose of the angelic vision to John, was and is to reveal Jesus Christ. His person, his power, and his plan for the future. 
The vision was given to John so that he could write it down and pass it along to the churches. Again, what is the purpose of the vision? Jesus. All right, now let's, I know you're probably thinking, oh, don't whet our appetite like that. Really go into Revelation. No. What are, and I've named some of them, but what are the commonalities between the New Testament visions and the people that received them? Let's transition a little bit and talk about these correlations between them, the connections between them, the commonalities. Okay, number one. These are good things to write down. I'll probably take a drink before I do it. Mm. It's good stuff. Number one, every person that we have studied and looked at is a key figure in Scripture. You might be thinking, well, every person in Scripture is a key figure. Well, I guess to some degree that might be true, but not really. There are a lot of regular folks in there. In fact, some of them are called the rabble. Are they key people? The rabble of the Old Testament, that little remnant of rabbleous people who followed the Israelites around for 40 years in the desert? Were they key people? No. They were all key figures, key people. Zechariah, the father of the, the father of the Lord's prophet, John the Baptist, Mary, the wife of Joseph and mother of Jesus, Joseph, the husband of Mary and earthly father of Jesus, Peter, James, and John, who were disciples and apostles of Jesus Christ, the core group of 120 who preached the gospel to men from every nation. These are key people. Saul, who persecuted the church but became Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles and author of 13 New Testament books. Amazing. Ananias. Ananias, the Christian leader in Damascus who restored Saul's sight and commissioned him for gospel ministry. Do you really think he's a core person? How about if you were the one that was chosen to lay your hands on an anoint and pray over the man who became the greatest apostle in history? Is Ananias a core person? Are you kidding me? Wow, what a calling that man had on his life. Amazing. Ananias. Cornelius. One of, some say the first, but I say one of them because we've got to deal with the Ethiopian eunuch, but one of the first ever Gentile converts to Christianity. And he is the turning point guy in redemptive history. We will no longer look at Cornelius as just some humble Roman centurion that got a vision and had an encounter with Peter and then became a Christian. This man was a key person at a strategic time in redemptive history. Because God went to him and gave him the gospel, you hear the gospel. This is a key guy, Cornelius. Peter, again, the leader of the apostles, the author of a couple of epistles. Peter, amazing guy. John, John the disciple slash apostle in whom Jesus loved, he always says that. The author of a gospel, three epistles in the book of Revelation. What are we talking about here, friends? These are the visions of the New Testament. Look at who received them. These are key people, friends. This isn't Joe down at Stop and Save. I got a vision. I work at Stop and Save. Did you? I think it was the El Roselle you ate. Super burrito vision. I get them. Ah. Really? You got to. You see who gets the. I mean, 
The 120 Christians, oh, well, they're less significant as the other. Wait, these are the people that preached the gospel like never before down amongst these thousands of people. These are, these are, these are, this is big stuff here. Number two, second thing. First was every person that we looked at is a key figure, even that 120 group. Two, I've said this over and over and over, every vision, all the visions had something to do with Jesus Christ and the gospel. Every one of them was about Jesus. Every one of them. Even in the Old Testament, they're about Jesus. Even in the Old Testament, they're about God's redemptive work. God sends visions to prophets saying, the people are in sin, make it known to them so I can save them. It's always about salvation. The visions are always about that. They're always about redemptive work. They're always about Jesus. They're always about the gospel. I can't find one in Scripture that has something to do with something else. It's always about Jesus. Three, all of the visions took place just before or during key redemptive events. Study your Bible and look. The Son of God is about to enter into time and our planet. God is about to deliver, to bring the deliverer. Critical key moment in redemptive history. Cornelius, every example, all of them took place at some strategic key moment. These are patterns that we see here. Pattern after pattern. Key figures. They're always about Jesus and the gospel. And they always took place. We're looking at them from a historical perspective. They always took place during key redemptive events. Before a revival or during. Somewhere in there. Those are the patterns. The great question for us now becomes... Does God send visions today? Maybe. In terms of revelatory visions, no. God is not revealing any new truth outside of his scripture. Scripture is done. It's closed. Our understanding of it isn't. Right? Amen? Oh, I've got it all figured out. Really? Scripture is a complete revelation. It is a finished product, if you will. Now, our understanding of it is not complete. We will spend the rest of our lives wrestling through Scripture and trying to understand it. And guess what? You'll probably spend eternity learning, too, with Jesus. It's an amazing thing. So in terms of revelatory vision, no, there are no more revelatory visions. Now, what does that mean? That means that Mormonism is a false religion. I say that with all sensitivity. You, you don't get a vision in 1845, and now the vision contradicts Scripture. And that's another thing. Any vision, all visions, if you get a vision, it has to affirm Scripture. It can't be something outside of Scripture. It, there's no new truth. Well, God can say whatever he wants. God has said what he wants to say. All that he wants to say. And he says in his word, it's sufficient. You need to hear nothing more from me, is what he says. And we say, oh, we need more. 
And think of all of the religions that are based upon new revelation. All of them are. We must remember that the primary means by which God reveals Himself is through His Word, which is a closed revelation. If God does send visions today, they will follow the biblical patterns that we have discovered. God may send visions to key people. He may send visions to people of influence. He may send visions to church leaders and to those he's going to use for special evangelistic purposes. It's possible. I'm way more of a cessationist, I say. I don't think there's any need for that. But it's possible. But if he does, what's he going to do? He's probably going to send them to strategic people here, not just anyone. And how would we be able to discern in that moment who's strategic and who isn't? We have to look back on history to see. But when we examine history, they were key people at key moments. So one of the patterns that a vision today must follow is that it's got to be somebody that he may visions must have something to do with Jesus and the gospel. If you get a vision and it doesn't have anything to do with Jesus and the gospel, it's not from God. Period. Why would we say such a thing? Phil, you're so closed-minded. Are you saying that God is closed-minded? That's what he's revealed in his word. Do we believe what his word says? Are we going to believe what his word reveals? Are we going to think outside of the word and follow along all the patterns of everyone else, everyone else who rejects the sufficiency of scripture? And a great many people in the church do today reject the sufficiency of scripture. They don't think it's enough. We need more. I didn't develop these patterns. I just investigated them and found them, and I'm teaching them to you. They're in the scripture. I didn't come up with them. I didn't conjure them up. They're not my scheme. I mean, do we really want to be biblical as a church or not? Because guess what? If we choose to be biblical, then we're going to have to change some things about the way we think and, and act and behave, aren't we? A whole lot of people need to do that in the church today, starting with me. God sends a vision, guess what? It's going to have something to do with Jesus. It's going to point to Jesus. It's going to point to the gospel. It's going to affirm biblical truth, redemptive truth. Another thing, visions today, God may send visions to people before or during key redemptive events. That's a biblical pattern. God is still totally at work saving sinners in our world today. There are revivals happening in China and other countries. I pray that God is planning to launch a revival in our community and nation. We need a revival really bad. He could most certainly send a vision to, or maybe six visions, I don't know, to alert his people of what he's about to do or about what he's already doing. We just can't see it. He could. Is there going to be a turning point in the future of America? Yeah, there is. It's a slow fade right now. God could. I mean, he sent visions during redemptive event changing kind of things, different seasons of his redemption and how that works out. He could send something. If he did, it would have to line up with what Scripture says, right? 
God may send visions to people in areas where the Bible is inaccessible or where it and Christianity are illegal. Cornelius' scenario was like this in that the gospel was relatively absent in Caesarea. Oh, they had the Torah there and they had Judaism, but for whatever reason, the message of Jesus Christ really hadn't permeated that area. Of all the scenarios in my mind, in my opinion, I suppose, this one makes the most sense to me that God would send visions in those areas where the Bible is inaccessible, illegal, Christians, Christianity is illegal. It makes sense that if God was going to send a vision, he'd send them into those places where his word cannot be found. There's a terrific little book called Persian Springs that details the stories of several, several Iranians who experienced visions of who? Jesus Christ which ultimately led to their conversions. These people had little to no access to the Bible, and if they had been caught with a Bible, they would have been thrown into jail or worse. These people were tired of Islam and its oppressiveness. They were desperate and cried out for God to reveal himself to them. And what happened? God gave them visions of Jesus. And then what did he do? He didn't leave them there. No, by no means. He led them to underground pastors and churches where they could hear the gospel and get saved and become members of the church. It happens all the time in countries where the word of God is illegal and banished, inaccessible. But again, these experiences and these scenarios follow the same pattern as scripture it's about jesus visions are always about jesus i saw a man in white with white hair and, and beautiful and i knew it was jesus so i went out and and did all that i could to find some christians in my community and somehow i found some that were hiding in this particular area and, and i went down there and and the gentleman told me about jesus and his radiant glory and the transfiguration and i knew the vision was about jesus and i gave my heart to him and i'm a believer but it's all about jesus pattern here is that even in these special scenarios where the word of God has been and all that the pattern is the same as what scripture teaches these visions point to Jesus they point to the redeemer they point to the savior they point to the messiah <clears throat> according to the scriptures that is the point of every and all visions even in the Old Testament. Jesus said this to the religious leaders in John 5, 39 to 40. He said to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. You see, friends, Jesus is the point to all prophecy. Jesus is the point to all visions. Jesus is the point to all of Scripture. End of story. If what we see and hear out there, if what we believe at this very moment 
what we see here, believe, doesn't line up with what we've learned here today, with what the Bible proclaims about these things, with the patterns that are illustrated in Scripture so clearly, if what we see here, believe, doesn't line up, then we know that what we believe, see, and hear is false. I didn't make up the rules. God did. And the beauty of a moment like this and of a message like this is that God loves to turn his children to the truth and to, and to heal them and to, to expose their sin and to heal them of their sin and to begin new and fresh with them. And so he doesn't just leave us in our error if we have error as pertaining to these things. He says, come to me. I'll wash you and cleanse you. I'll heal you. Make you new in this very moment. Just keep this in mind. It's all about Jesus. Do you believe that, friend? We've read all that scripture and done some work together this morning. It's been about Jesus from the beginning. It was Jesus in the middle. And it's about Jesus in the end. He's the more, most important person in history. The most important person today. Do we trust him? Are we relying on him? Have we received him as our Lord and Savior? Do we believe what his word clearly teaches? That's what he's beckoning us to do today. Don't go out with this newfound knowledge and start annihilating people who see things differently. <clears throat> Annihilate them a little bit, not a whole lot, though. No, I'm just kidding. You, you, you know the truth about these things now, at least about visions. We're going to learn over the next couple of weeks about miracles and other things. What is our goal? Our goal is to help people understand God's truth and to teach it in love and to teach it in a gracious way not in a condemning way, not in a way that just annihilates people's perspectives and views. Don't do what I do on Facebook. Stupid. Go out and love people with the truth, and if they're in error, help them understand. Use the word of God. Don't just give them your commentary. Hopefully you've taken notes, or if you want to go and, and print something off of our website, we put, I always put the transcripts and stuff on there. Get this information and share it with people, because let me tell you right now, there is an enormous amount of error as pertaining to what we've talked about in the church today. And you know what it is that's being offered up to God through all of this stuff? Strange fire. The passage you heard earlier today was about two men who offered up strange fire and God put them to death for it. Was God making an example of them? Absolutely. That was like the first worship service ever in Israel's history. And you got two goofballs screwing around with a lighter. And they were taken out. Let's not think for a moment that what's being offered up in the name, not even in the name of Jesus, circus routines that are going on. Let's not believe for a moment that these things are truly pleasing to God. And since we know the truth about these things, we are obligated to share it with others, especially those who claim the name of Jesus and call themselves Christians. Let's love them with the truth. Show them what you've learned. We want the church to believe the truth and uphold the truth and live out the truth and glorify God. Isn't that what we want?
That's what we want in our own lives. That's what I struggle with every day. Every day it's a battle for that to take place. Well, it's okay. Help others to do that too.